Welcome to Luke 21 Radio, a broadcast explaining biblical prophecy in the tradition of St. Augustine. And now, from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Luke 21 Radio. Today we wind up Genesis chapter 6. We've been digging rather deep into this chapter because it's fundamental for understanding what happened in the early world. Just as Jesus said, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We better get a very accurate picture of what was going on in the days of Noah, or we'll miss what's going on in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So what we're going to look at today in Genesis 6 is spiritual warfare. What can we learn about spiritual warfare in this important chapter? And remember, we're doing both protology and eschatology. Protology, the study of those first things, particularly as we're seeing them in Genesis. Eschatology, about the last things we find talking about the end of times before the return of Christ. Now, in Genesis 6, we saw that the sons of God were not human beings. They were fallen angels, and we've developed this over multiple episodes. The daughters of men they saw took to them as wife and had offspring, the Nephilim, where these hybrid human giants were on the earth. They were wicked. They taught mankind all types of wicked practices. And they were, according to the Septuagint, the mighty men or the giants that were of old. Okay, that's where we are so far in Genesis 6. Now let's get a real basic outline of all the Bible in a hop, skip, and jump on spiritual warfare. The first prophecy in the Bible is Genesis 3.15, where God says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And if you're a serpent or if you're ever killing a snake, what do you do? You whack the head or cut off the head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan tried to take out Jesus by crucifying him, but he he didn't give him a fatal blow even though he tried. But in the process, Satan got the fatal blow. Now, we can go from Genesis 3.15 to the New Testament. Where was Jesus crucified? Golgotha, the place of a skull. And while he was being hit by the serpent, the seed of the woman, according to Genesis 3.15, he was crushing the head of the serpent, breaking his venom, because death, the venom from the serpent, was its hold was broken by Christ's sacrifice on a cross. But between the beginning, Genesis 3.15, and Golgotha in the New Testament, we have the middle. And this was a great prefiguring of the spiritual warfare in a comprehensive sense that Jesus was going to do. And I'm referring to that famous chapter, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. We almost should postpone teaching children that until they get older, because they tend to emphasize that uh, David maybe didn't look like the big, strong guy to take on Goliath, and he was brave, and this and that, and that's the end of the story. Well, not really, because after the stone goes from David into the skull of of Goliath, this was 
basically linking this preview of Christ on the cross with Genesis 3.15. This is the link in the middle. And we also read in 1 Samuel 17 several times, multiple times, that David cuts the head off of Goliath, and then he carries it into Jerusalem. It's it's the conquering son of David, okay? So that's your hop, skip, and jump of biblical prophecy, really, really the see the prefiguring, obviously reversing the hold that the serpent has uh, ever since Genesis chapter 3. But there's something else going on. And now we're going to go to First Chronicles 20, a passage I'm sure you've never heard, or I'm fairly sure you've never heard a homily on. First Chronicles 20 and verse 6 says, And there was war again at Gath, Gath, G-A-T-H, where there was a man of great stature. Okay, that would be kind of a giant, but we're not going to jump and immediately think this is one of the giant hybrid mutants. But it says he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also descended from the giants. Again, in the Greek Old Testament, that's the exact same word we find in Genesis 6. And you have a giant with six fingers and six toes. He's a genetic mutant from what went on in Genesis 6. All right. Then he taunted Israel, and Jonathan, David's nephew, slew him and it says these were descended from the giants at Gath. Gath was kind of a, a pit, a, a location, a community where these giants resided. Okay? Now, let's go to that very, very familiar scripture that all children learn, that even adults we know that's really about crushing the head. We read this. 1 Samuel 17, this is the David and Goliath passage, and verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the side of the mountain, and Israel stood on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Here we have from Gath a snake pit, so to speak, where the giants live, the remnants, so to speak, of the giants. And we know from First Chronicles 20 that there were mutant giants there. And now the Philistines bring out their champion to oppose David, prefiguring Christ, battling the evil in the world. And we find that Goliath, in fact, was from Gath, exactly where this giant community was. So David and Goliath were prefiguring the defeat of not only Satan, but of the fallen ones who tried to further the work of evil on earth as we've been studying in Genesis chapter 6. Now, just a quick review. We learned from First Enoch exactly where these fallen angels descended to earth. We know where the landing pad was. It was on the summit of Mount Hermon, tallest mountain in uh, Holy Land now. I say Holy Land now because it was an evil land back then. 
Mount Hermon was over 9,000 feet tall. And on the base of Mount Hermon was this huge rock plateau. And in Matthew 16, it says this is the area where Jesus started quizzing the disciples, well, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And Jesus identifies Peter as the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. This was in the geographic setting, so to speak, the backdrop of the location where Matthew 16 was going on was the Mount Hermon standing tall in the air. Now, you're going to think I'm absolutely out of my mind, but just stay with me for a second. I've recommended the book by Michael Heiser entitled Reversing Hermon. Again, Mount Hermon was where the fallen ones in Genesis 6 descended, according to First Enoch. We've gone through all this. All right. Now, I probably should have qualified my recommendation of the book because in it, Michael Heiser says something that will highly offend Catholics. He said, Matthew 16 isn't anything about the Pope or Peter's confession. In other words, it's not anything about what Catholics or Protestants believe about Matthew 16. Well, now, if that kind of sentence in a book offends you and, you know, you can't sleep at night, we'll stay far away from it. Michael Heiser was making a point, and his point, he was basically trying to highlight something that's been neglected. And what was neglected is that there's something going on in Matthew 16 that makes the whole context scream out that Jesus was not only proclaiming what Peter and the church was going to do, but reversing what happened on Mount Hermon way back in Genesis 6. Now, you might say, well, why in the world would I recommend a book that says that Matthew 16 isn't about the Pope or Peter's confession? Well, honestly, I'm so far over that. I can remember shortly after I became a Catholic, Scott Hahn did a talk, and I think it was on cassette tape back then, but he went through about a dozen, maybe two dozen top Protestant scholars that says, no, this is about Peter's confession. Jesus was talking about Peter. I mean, come on. But I will say this. Michael Heiser's book has done more for me personally in strengthening my faith in the papacy like no other book I've ever read. Why? Because if you take Peter confession and Jesus saying, you are the rock and I'm going to build my church here, it means the Catholic church is the only thing in the world capable of defeating the evil unleashed in Genesis 6. You're not going to do it through politics or petitions and all this other stuff. And in the end times, in eschatology, this is where protology and eschatology join, we find the pit is open, Revelation 9, and dark spirits are freed to lead the world into apostasy, to the darkness that was over the ancient world. And Heiser makes an exceedingly important point, saying, since 2010, modern scholars have found out that the Mesopotamian literature was almost word for word, image for image, parallel to Genesis 6, except for one point. 
what they thought in Genesis 6 was the supreme good. They thought this is why ancient Babylon inherited this wisdom from the fallen ones, the watchers, and made them so wise and superior to all other civilizations on earth. And Heiser points out, Genesis is the shot across the bow saying, no, this isn't the supreme good. This is how the world becomes wicked and world empires are demonically darkened and led astray. And what do we get to when we get to the end of the Bible? In fact, even towards the end of the book of Revelation, what do we see in Revelation 17 and 18? Revelation 17, 5 says, and on her forehead was a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. Where did this stuff come from in Babylon? The most recent scholarship on Mesopotamian religion and beliefs and where they think their culture came from is almost exactly what Genesis 6 is talking about, except they think it's great, and Genesis 6 and Moses is recording for us, know that it's evil, so evil that it brought on the flood. So what happened when John saw this vision of Mystery Babylon the Great? It says in Revelation 17, 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why marvel? If you know Genesis 6, and Jews did, Jews in the ancient world knew what was going on in Genesis 6. Modern Bible commentators are still catching up. We know where demonic empires start, and we know as Catholics and belief in the papacy what can put an end to it. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 225 of Luke 21 Radio. Luke 21 is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at luke21.com.